Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe FDA approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to this week's episode of the TLS podcast. I'm Alex Clark and Lucy Dallas, the TLS's arts editor, is here with me. Hi, Lucy. How are you? I know what you're going to say better than I sound. Yes, that's exactly what I was going to say. Are you okay, So Alex? sorry, listeners. I'm a little bit croaky. I'm oh, absolutely dear. fine. I'm being brought to you by copious amounts of tea and tissues this week, but I'm absolutely fine. Well, um, listeners, I did just say to Alex before we came on air that she sounds like my late lamented grandma who smoked just the whole entire time <laughs> and as a result sounded permanently like Alex. But but you're, you you're clear up soon, you? think there's something awful about when you get older and you're in the slightest bit off colour, and I am only off colour, I'm absolutely fine, I sound much, much worse than I feel, uh, that you feel you should really have been out on the lash or smoking a million woodbines or having a great time, but you never are. If you have an achy back, you think it's because you should have been in a nightclub all night, but actually you've just walked up the stairs in the yeah, wrong way. Yeah, it's because you bent over to pour a cup of tea or something wrong. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. well. What the hell? The anyway, trials of great age. Yes, I'm sorry. It's a very, we, we mustn't, you are as young as you feel and I feel fine and not like I have a cold at all. And hello, everybody. Uh, and we are, we're, we're forging through. We are now out of January and near to the spring yes and of course all sorts of things start like book prizes for example and this new prize the sort of replacement in a way to the costa mm. book prize has been announced and it's amazing it's irish fiction on a roll again yes again the to the book category winners not only irish but you know good percentage paul murray's the beasting won the Fiction Prize, the Novel Prize, and Michael McGee won the debut fiction. So you've got all the writers and all the actors, haven't you, at the moment? Yeah, that's right. It's all go Ireland, and in fact, and we have a little bit of that later on. Yes, that's why. That's kind of why we're why we're mentioning it. But we have a bit of it. We should also mention that Fern Brady has won the non-fiction prize with her memoir, Strong Female Character, and Beth Lincoln has won the children's fiction category with the Swifts and that those all now kind of go head to head. And I believe that the overall 
judge of the overall prizes is headed by Bernadine Evaristo. So we shall wait to see. Mm, brilliant. So I read a book this week, Alex. Do you want to ask me? Ask me what book I read. Oh, my goodness. Lizzie, did, did you read a book this <laughs> I week? I did. What, what it's was not, it? It's not that it's unusual. It was sort of serendipitous. I just, you know, was looking. You did make it sound read. unusual then. I wasn't just <laughs> no, patronising really you. Did. I read a book. Imagine. Now I read a book by someone I've never I've never read any of his stuff before. I read Cahokia Jazz by Francis Buffett. Oh. And I know that he's very highly thought of and I had never read anything before. And have you read it? I have. Tell me what you thought. I thought it was terrific and yeah. very quite great, heartbreaking. He? Yeah. And completely it's a sort of um uh, what's the word for it? There's a word for it when you re you redo it's like an alternative history. So yes. it's set in the past. It's allo history. Yeah, it's where it's where things could have gone had a branch of events gone off a different way. And it's Which is exactly what his previous novel, Light Perpetual, was too, oh, in a okay. completely different setting. And I loved that book. Yeah, yeah. We had a brilliant review of it. I looked it up. I'm very late, of course. I'm always very, very late with stuff. We had a brilliant review of it by Clifford Thompson in the TLS last autumn, I think. I'm just saying this. I'm just telling you what I read. Not that it's of any interest to anyone, but just highly, highly recommended. Really, yeah. really brilliant, really absorbing, thought provoking book, I thought. And also emotional. You know, it's got a heart and a head. It's really interesting, isn't it? When, you know, particularly when these alternative histories, are you know they speak to something that's happening now and I was just noticing that this is to do with the states isn't it and mm. that also occurs in Catherine Lacey's novel biography of X which I loved came out last year and also to Paradise by Hanya Yanagihara they imagine this different past for the United States at a point where the states are looking kind of less united than ever it's very very interesting mm, yes it is and also I wonder if there's something in the air because it's it's from about 100 years ago and it reminded me slightly of the is it the Kate Atkinson Shrines of Gaiety mm, mm. similar kind of thing it's like a kind of well what what might it be like now if 100 years ago it had been like this that kind of thing well, we are going to the United States, are we not? This we this are. week in the podcast, as well as a little bit of Irishness. This week, Sinead Gleason on the sights and sounds of New York City as perceived by Irish writer Maeve Brennan. And Costica Bradatan explores the life and work of an influencer ahead of his time, Henry David Thoreau. But first, Maeve Brennan lived her early life in Dublin as part of a politically active Republican family who relocated to Washington, D.C. when Maeve was 17. But it was New York that was to become her home and one of her great inspirations in the columns that she wrote for The New Yorker under the pseudonym The Long-Winded Lady. A new edition of those pieces has just been reissued by Peninsula Press, with an introduction by Sinead Gleeson, who I'm delighted to say joins us now. Sinead, welcome. Thank you, Alice. Great to talk to you. Well, you know, one of the things that struck me is that you edited an anthology of Irish short stories called The Art of the Glimpse. And that is a great description of Brennan's work, isn't it? People and places and incidents that she saw almost by chance were her starting points. Yeah, very much so. And I think I always make the connection between Maeve Brennan and James Joyce in that Brennan was born 
on the 6th of January, which is the Epiphany, and it's the day that the dead, the, the great final story in Dubliners is set. Um, and people talk about jo Joyce and the Epiphany, and Maeve Brennan sort of had her own version of that. She called these kind of chinks in her work uh, moments of recognition. And I think that that is very much what I would say about Maeve. She was very good at picking up very tiny, minute, almost things that would be imperceptible to other people and noticing them and then expanding and diving in and sort of winnowing them down to something else. So she had a very, very good eye for picking up on things that to most people would pass them by or would seem inconsequential, but she was able to make them into something. These moments of recognition, these very sort of deep and insightful um, revelations. Reading some of them, I was struck by how she can do the kind of, it's at least a double thing of it completely conjuring up New York or a bit of New York, as you say, the little, the bit that she's focusing on. And yet she's there. It's it's not, um, you, you can kind of feel her presence in there and her eye. So it's very particular, but it's also sort of everything in the town. It's a very fine balance, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, she says in several of the pieces in this collection that there's a great, what is the word she uses? She said there's something brilliant in, in being unseen in the street because a lot mm. of these pieces are from the vantage point of Maeve looking and looking from places that people wouldn't necessarily notice her. So she's in diners, she's in restaurants, she's looking out of windows. There's a lot of windows in these stories. And she's on the subway, she's on buses, and she's glaring out the window of her apartment. So a lot of it is her unseen as the kind of omniscient narrator of the stories, if you like, but often trying to dis discount herself in the process like so I say in the introduction like frequently she would bring a book or a magazine with her with a, you know with the pretense of looking like she was very busily reading but she wasn't it was so she could be a not disturbed and b she could listen and eavesdrop on people's conversations so that vantage point is very much part of the stories it's it's made giving us her version of that world but also I think all writers write to make sense of things and I think particularly non-fiction writers try it's it's like answering a question and for Maeve it was how do I feel about the city how do I feel about navigating this city as a woman as a woman alone as, as an exile as a person who's not originally from here I mean it is it was very much her adopted city and she says in another piece that she still doesn't necessarily feel like a real New Yorker so it's all, all of these kind of contrasts go on in the pieces as well. I love that way she talks about New York. And we're really, in her pieces, aren't we? we're talking about Manhattan, really. We're talking about the island. And she thinks of it as a sort of capsized city with everybody clinging to something that's becoming a kind of wreckage in a way. Yeah, I think one of the things I think about, and there's a lot of imagery in, in the pieces, but so many of the pieces remind me of the paintings of Edward Hopper. There's a lot of people who are lonely, cut off, isolated. And you know that idea of being alone in a crowd. New York is a, a city like that where people, you know, will almost step over if you fell over in the street. And I think she's very much aware of that. She's also aware that the city is constantly changing, something that she laments frequently in these pieces, that she talks of hating, you know, the white wreckers dust and that she got buildings that she loved um, were being pulled down. There's a lot of bulldozers. There's literally a house in one of the pieces that's dug up and moved about 40 mm. blocks. A farmhouse. She goes yeah. to see it in its new place. Yeah. She, yeah, and also again, loads of the, the way she talks about landscape architecture buildings is is very um was with a lot of warmth. She, there's a lot of personification. Like she talks about the Empire State being on nudging terms with other buildings. She talks about the the Whitney wearing a kind of a shawl and being sort of like 
like a nursemaid almost. So lots of the places that she goes, she thinks of buildings as, as this, you know, that they live and they breathe. And I, I use the word psychogeography a lot about Maeve because she thinks about what's behind the walls, how, who lived in there, what were all the families and, and souls and loves and disasters and bereavements that pass through all these places that she goes through. So I think the city was just so, something that she loved. And yet she moved in very small circumferences. Like she says herself, like, you know, I've never really been up to the Bronx. I didn't really bother going um, to Brooklyn. She was very much moving around. You know, she was the Algonquin, the public library where her first job was, the New Yorker offices, some of the bars she went to. So she kind of retraced the same steps all the time. She also moved all the time. She was very peripatetic, um, always on the move, was said to fit all her everything she owned in one taxi and lived in a sequence of hotels and apartments. So I think the walking around is very symptomatic of Maeve's own life, this restlessness, this unanchoredness of feeling very unmoored. Um, even though she loved the city, it, there's always a sense that Maeve never really settled into New York, you know. How much was that biography? Now, I mentioned just at the beginning that she came from a very political family, but that was kind of a rather sort of euphemistic way to put it. I mean, her father was imprisoned at points, wasn't he, before? In the early days of the Irish Free State, he was a politician in Washington, but she was an exile, wasn't she? And there is this sense of incredible transience. Did that affect her? Hugely, do you think, and long lastingly? Yeah, I think so, particularly actually in her, her fiction. And Peninsula published the collection last year, The Springs of Affection, with the great introduction by Claire Louise Bennett. And in those stories, I mean, the first seven stories in that book are set in the house in Ranelagh where she grew up. She doesn't even change the name of the street, the name of her siblings, the name of the number on the door. I've been in that house and so many of the details in the house are exactly the same as, as it is. And these stories were written, you know, after 1950, when she was well settled in New York, was a staff writer at the New Yorker already. And her imagination just kept straying back across the Atlantic to Ireland. She couldn't shake Ireland off in her fiction. Yet it's very, I mean, the long-winded lady essays are, there's no Ireland in them at all. There's one piece where she talks about seeing some nuns and it gives her a fright because it reminds her of the nuns in Ireland who are very, you know, austere and and terrible. But but Ireland is completely absent from the long-winded lady, but it's it's all she wrote about in in, in most of the good fiction. The Rose Garden's more the American stories, but the Springs of Affection was Maeve never, ever really been able to leave Ireland behind, you know. It's interesting, isn't it, that she doesn't talk about Manhattan, about New York as a a kind of partly Irish city, does she? She doesn't, those nuns aside, she doesn't congregate with other Irish natives at all. And and yet there must have been so many there. There were so many there. Yeah. And the nearest is like she, I mean, Sullivan's was one of the big famous Irish bars that she went to. It was owned by two brothers and she was a, a regular there. But no, she doesn't mention the the large Irish diaspora in the city. She doesn't talk about, I mean, even the idea, again, to go back to Joyce, the idea that, you know, Ulysses is the is the ultimate perambulatory, wandering mm. stream of consciousness kind of novel. And, and so much of what Maeve does in this these pieces are she starts in one place or she looks at a person or a dog or a flower in Washington Square Park and then her ruminations begin and that's where the pieces come from. So there's a lot of overlap between those things but she doesn't even talk about Irish writers she mentions buying a book by Ben Kiley the great Irish short story writer Benedict Kiley and I think that's one of the the only references but then she kind of had a horror she talked before about refusing to read Elizabeth Bowen because she she thought assumed it would be like a lot of Irish writing which she called you know the bog and thunder of Irish writing so because Bowen had been Anglo-Irish she just went I'm not, I'm not going to read that mm-hmm. so there is resistance to also you know being called an Irish writer being assimilated into whatever the Irish canon was but then of course you know in Maeve's life time her work was never published in the UK and Ireland only only in the US. I was reading it around it as well and there was a piece I think by Anne Enright saying that 
people tended to to talk about her at the time they would they would talk about her as an irish writer or or as very stylish and she's saying actually that's because personally she was those things but in her writing I mean, as you say, she absolutely wasn't trying to do what she called the bog and thunder. It's very urban, very precise, and it's quite cold, some of it. I mean, I don't mean it's without empathy. I know what you mean. But it's sort of precise, isn't it? It's not emotive, and she's not trying to get you on her side. It's a very different thing from what was perceived as the Irish school as writing, but people sort of said it anyway. Yeah, and I I should point out for your listeners that these pieces, uh, the long-winded lady pieces, were originally published in the Talk of the Town column, which still exists in The New Yorker, and Maeve Brennan was the first woman to ever write it. So she was probably confined by word count, but also, weirdly, when I read the Talk of the Town, the more contemporary ones now, they tend to be, they tend towards the more humorous and the comic, whereas Mm. lots of these pieces are, are full of you know, hauntedness, longing, mm. saudad, sadness, all of these things. They were they were very melancholic pieces for, for a woman to be writing at that time and publishing in such a high profile paper. But that this is what she wanted to say. And this, as you say, the coldness is, I think, because of the, the, the act of distillation. They're very concise. They're very precise. I talk in my introduction I, I, again. I'm a huge fan of um, Clarice Silas Spector, who was also writing in Le Journal in Brazil. She was writing chronicas, which were, again, these small episodic pieces that often were about her own life, her own wanderings. You know, Brazil, her, her daily life. And there's huge overlap in, in Brennan writing about New York in the 50s, 60s and the Spectre writing about Rio de Janeiro in the same decade. It's actually really kind of striking how, how similar they are. But I think like a lot of contemporary writers would, you know, or if they haven't read Brennan really should or possibly have been interested, like Rebecca Solnit, who's written, you know, Wanderlust about the idea of how women navigate big spaces by themselves. I think Olivia Lang's work as well, maybe even people like Natalia Ginsburg in, in the that detail that Brennan is so good at, you know, whether it's writing about broccoli or sofas or curtains <laughs> in her fiction. You know, she's very yeah. good at tiny, tiny, that these MacGuffins, as I would call them, you know, they're, you know, they're never really about sofas or broccolis or about something else. Um, so, yeah. So broccoli one's brilliant, particularly, yeah. isn't it? It's what really struck me is that this kind of form of short-ish column, they're not very long pieces, is a kind of commonplace, a sort of staple of journalistic writing now. And some are extremely good. And some, and I think I've written some myself, which might tend towards this idea of a quick idea, something you observe that you make into something rather jolly with some insight perhaps on what you see and what is contemporary and what is around you. And it's actually a world away from what she was doing. And in some ways, these pieces are a lot closer to the kind of stories that you might find in The Dead, for example, because they open out immensely, don't they? I mean, as you say, the broccoli, it's not about broccoli. She orders broccoli sort of on a whim in a restaurant, doesn't she? And then she doesn't know quite how to eat it and she feels the sort of pity of the waiter but also his discretion when he removes it from the table without commenting further and it's really a story about kind of discomfort isn't it and sort of I suppose in the modern way modern way is putting it sitting with the discomfort yeah, I mean, I think my favorite pieces in the book are actually the pieces where she is, you know, sitting in in restaurants. She called, like, she says, uh, 
small inexpensive restaurants with the home fires of New York City. And she always went looking for apartments that had fires and didn't always get them. But again, it's her looking out and there's something about her, again, that Hopper-esque thing of her being behind the glass or sometimes looking at people across from her, listening to, you know, a man chiding his wife and his t- noticing people's tone of voice, noticing the hierarchies and groups of people, um, noticing, you know, lover's tips, a, a guy trying to convince his, his girlfriend to come to meet him. She's on the phone and he's reading the menu over the phone. So little things like this, again, it's it's the it gives her this sort of authorial distance, but also sort of makes her this kind of, you know, it's not quite isolationist, but there's something that you know that everything she's telling you is true, even though she probably could be making it up. I mean, we have to remember they were written as newspaper columns. They weren't they weren't published as essays. But I do think of her as, as an essayist as, and a kind of a flaneuse and a psychogeographer. All of those things are, are true about her, but she wouldn't have been called any of those things at the time. So I do, I do think it's striking that she was able to to do so much in such short pieces t- tonally as well as the pr- precision, because um. I, I don't think everybody was writing like that in Talk of the Town back then, and certainly not any women who were writing it. By the genius, by the archival genius of Lucy Dallas, who managed <laughs> to, to go back through the TLSs of many years ago, 15 years ago, I wrote about previous editions of uh, The Long-Winded Lady and The Springs of Affection. And there were obviously, as one does, you pull out things that are particularly striking to you. And then when I read them again, uh, when this edition came and we were going to talk to you, I remembered the pieces with the absolute force. It was as if I had read them yesterday. And there is one which is absolutely extraordinary about her seeing a woman dropping dead in the street. A youngish woman just drops dead. And it's what she does with that. Just tell us a bit about that piece, because I know it struck you too. She's basically looking, uh, wondering what happened to this woman. And, you know, pe- people are saying, look, I think she killed over. I don't know what happened to her. She just went down. But it's later on when she's, Brennan's kind of haunted by this image of this woman lying on the ground and her youth, I think. And she says later on, it's a, it's a really shocking and sort of dagger in the heart line where she says, you know, I hope she had nobody who loved her, who won't be, you know, worrying and sad for the rest of their lives. So I'm paraphrasing, but it's something along those lines. Mm. And it's such a powerful line that you wish someone you wish there's no one who loved this woman because someone is going to be hurting over that. And it's it's really kind of devastating. I mean, I'm talking a lot about so dad and loneliness and stuff, but there's a lot of really funny elements to these stories as well. There is a piece called A Bus Full of Skulls. There's a terrible driver and all these women are kind of nagging, but she, she encounters this other couple and the guy is trying to talk to this woman. He says, well, I'm a socialist who's interested in lust, which I thought was a great line. <laughs> Shut up or not. But have you tried like, it on anyone yeah, recently? I haven't tried it. I may, maybe I will at some point. Um, but again, it's a, it's a story about disappointing men. And she basically says that, you know, it's, it's this loud voice that annoys her. So oh, there's a lot of her being quite judgmental in some of the pieces as well. She also e- hears two women talking about another woman um, who, who talk about her and say, yeah, she's quite an unremarkable woman, isn't she? Which would break your heart if you heard somebody saying that about you. Um, but she reports these things so so factually. She's almost like a medium. She's just channeling the things that she sees um, while trying to not let her own opinions get too much in the way. But occasionally, occasionally she does. She's just not as successful as, as holding back. Yes, you can sort of tell what she thinks, can't you? She doesn't tell you. But you can feel what she thinks. And yes, that one where the, where the women are dismissing the other woman and they say, what do they say? They say, oh, she's nice. Nice little woman counts for nothing. Imagine counts for nothing, which is just yeah. terrible. And she just gives you that and kind yeah. of lets that sink in. And then but you know how she feels about it. That yeah. You'd go back into your hotel room, wouldn't you? And, and, and just not come out for some, yeah. for <laughs> some <laughs> time. But she is also I love that story because maybe because, you know, it, it spoke to me. Um 
where a, a man offers her a, his seat on the subway and she refuses because she's getting out at the next stop. Yeah. And she kind of explains, no, no, I'm getting out at the next stop. As you're, please don't worry. And then she realized she isn't. She's actually getting That's out wrong. in two stops. Yeah. yeah. And then she's apologizing so much. She misses her stop. And it's all, <laughs> yes. she simply doesn't know what to do with herself. And in the end, what she's done is missed her connecting bus. And it's a nightmare. And she just, her awkwardness is, she doesn't know whether to laugh or be enraged by it. Well, what she also does, Alex, is, is something I think is perfectly reasonable, even though it's probably the afternoon, is that she goes to the nearest bar and has a martini. Yes, yes. So, she has a 50-cent yes. martini. <laughs> yeah. The first thing she does, which is very sensible, I've missed my bus, okay. Where do I get a cheap and she's, martini? Yes. It does make you long that, to be sitting at the counter bar, I must say, in yeah, many yeah. of the many of the restaurants. I mean, it's a, it's a wonderful sort of guy. And of course, partly out of a sort of nostalgia, New York, Manhattan yeah. is not like that now, of course. I just wanted to ask you, I mean, her own life as we've sort of alluded to her life was not always happy and she did develop alcoholism she became homeless at times she slept in the bathrooms of the New Yorker on occasion and I'm interested in how we see her as part of a tradition of rootless troubled women writers like for example Jean Rhys for whom writing is an attempt to make a kind of solidity or whether that's just, a, a, you know, really putting her in a box or putting all of those women in a box. Yeah, I mean, I remember when it's 20 years this year since Angela Burke's phenomenal book, um, Mae Brennan, Homesick at the New York, came out, which I think was a, a massive act of reclamation that, that introduced me and a lot of other people to Maeve's work. Without that book, I think a lot of people wouldn't know about Maeve or her writing. Mm. And I think a lot of the a lot of the coverage around then focused on the tragedy at the end, the kind of the the, the final act of Maeve's life of that, you know, her being the once glamorous woman of the Carl Bissinger photograph looking all, you know, elegant with the updo and the cigarette was now disheveled and was eventually like not allowed up onto that floor of the New Yorker and would be in the lobby just kind of haunted and, and adrift I kind of always try to focus not not on that part of her life but it's it's funny there is one of the pieces in this book where she's called on the island it's almost really prophetic when she sees this kind of drunk woman singing and she says you know I wonder about her and how she came to be that helpless in public I wonder at the power of her nightmare that it could wait for years and then trap her when she was finding her own way home and when you read that it's so prophetic about how Brennan's own life ended up that did she did she foresee in some way that this would happen to her but yeah I, I always think it's quite sad that she didn't come back permanently to, to Ireland I mean she did in the 70s and Roddy Doyle is related to Maeve his mother was her cousin and has he speaks on the New Yorker fiction podcast uh, about the story Christmas Eve and talks about you know Maeve coming to their house and bashing away in a typewriter and and you know him not knowing who she was but wishing now that he did and she so she would come back but eventually one day she just left she didn't tell Roddy's mother she just disappeared and there was a lot of that just upping and going constantly you know heading out the door bolting so to speak mm. um, and I wonder how different her life would have been had she found that kind of security or come back here because she has a lot of family there was there was a plaque unveiled to Maeve in Dublin earlier this month uh, which I was you know I was there with the Lord Mayor and we unveiled this plaque and I met lots of Maeve's family and they, they just to hear them speak about it there's a lot of people here who loved her so there was a lot of people she could have come home to but I do think Although there was a rootlessness about her, she ended up quite anchored to New York because of the way her life fell apart. You know, that half, half capsized city, as you say, Alex. Now, you're going to be doing an event about her, aren't you? And it's in perfect timing because it's, it's I think, tomorrow. Our podcast is, is arriving with you listeners on Thursday. And on Friday the 2nd, you're going to be doing an event with her with Brian Dillon. Just tell us about that in case our listeners are in London and would like to go. 
Yes, I'm really looking forward to that. Brian Dillon is a, another great Irish writer, nonfiction writer who has written about Maeve himself. And myself and Brian will be in conversation with John Mitchinson from the brilliant and well-known podcast Backlist. John actually knew William Maxwell, who was Maeve's editor at The New Yorker. And, you know, John was reading Maeve in 1990 because, because William Maxwell told him to read her. So he's a long interest in her career and her writing and knows a lot about her. So I think we'll have a really interesting conversation. It's in foils on Friday, the 2nd in the evening. It's like it's 7, 7 p.m. Oh, wonderful. Well, then if anyone can get along to that, that sounds like a, like a, a great event to go to. I just wanted to to end really and thank you so much. I could talk about Maeve Brennan forever, really. Um, but Sinead, your work, you've written essays yourself in your your collection Constellations. I mentioned your short story anthology. You edited a collection of writing about music by women uh, with Kim Gordon. And your first novel is also coming out in the spring. Tell us about Hackstone. Oh gosh, it's it's been a long time in in the making. I'm currently reading it again, actually, just before it gets printed, and I, I think I probably will never want to read it again. But every writer <laughs> tells me that's the way. It's set on an island. I, it's not necessarily an Irish island because it's it's far away from very far away from the coast. Um, the central character is a woman called Nell, who's an artist. A lot of her work is, you know, performance durational, um, to do with the land, um, and she lives quite contentedly on her own. But there's another group of women who live on the island called the Indians, who are a group who have cut themselves off from the world. And one day they send her a letter inviting her to uh, they want to commission something very specific from her. So she's kind of torn whether she gets involved with them or, or not. There's also a very specific sound on the island that only some people can hear. And of course, she gets involved with not just one man, but but two. So there's a lot going on. It's a very it's there's a lot of kind of ritual and folklore, I think, in the book. As like, again, we were speaking earlier about the Irish language. And I think it's a very it's a, people tell me it's a very visual book. And I think that's not just because she's an artist, but it's hard to write about landscape, especially if it's slightly based on Ireland and, and not be visual, I think. Right. Oh, for sure. And and about islands, which, you know, frequently crop up in contemporary Irish literature, don't they? I mean, I've been thinking about um, Emma Donoghue's book, Haven, and about Audrey McGee's book, The Colony. Colony, yeah, yeah. And and more besides, I mean, there's Sophie White. Mm. Um, I think there's another couple of people. I mean, going back to like Thomas O'Crohan's The Islander, there's a, there's a lot of really, they're interesting places. And I, I'm interested in them as kind of places of isolation, places that are like my island is 12 hours on a ferry. We don't have an island like that up Ireland, but it had to be a place that was hard to get away from. So mm. it probably has. I remember talking to like, I know Amy Liptrod and we've we've talked a lot about islands over the years. And I, I think it's probably it's not unlike maybe Orkland or Shetland or Faroe or some of those places. So it could be anywhere, but it's definitely a place I think living. And I spent quite a good bit of time on, on various Irish islands. And I think there's something about that sense of c- community. Um, and I think with the, the group of women I've created, I, I think even in the most democratic spaces, you know, whether it's the, the book club or the neighborhood watch, somebody always wants to be in charge. So I'm interested in kind of autocracy as well. And, you know, people, someone always wanting to be the boss, basically. Well, Sinead, I'm really glad that I've put myself through the cauldron of fire that is attempting to learn Irish in order to be able to recognise some of the <laughs> Irish words in Hankstone, of which Inin, Inin, which you, you've schooled me on the pronunciation. Am I getting it right now? Inin. 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 Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, is is one of them. Um, I'm so looking forward to talking to you about it. When it comes out, we're going to talk at the Cambridge Literary Festival in April, aren't we? But I'm uh, yes. until then, I'm just thrilled that you came to talk to us about this wonderful new edition of Maeve Brennan. Sinead Gleeson, thank you so much. Thank you both so much.
Still to come on the show, from the streets of Manhattan to the woods of Massachusetts in the company of Henry David Thoreau. And if you've enjoyed what we've discussed so far this week, let me remind you that you can subscribe to this podcast for free wherever you normally get your podcasts and you'll never miss an episode. back to the TLS podcast. I'm Lucy Dallas. Now, why should we be in such desperate haste to succeed and in such desperate enterprises? If a man does not keep pace with his companions, perhaps it is because he hears a different drummer. Let him step to the music which he hears, however measured or far away. These modern sounding ideas, despite the 19th century language, come from one of America's great influences, to use some 21st century language. Thoreau's rousing words and deeds still resonate today. And there are three new books out about the Chanticleer of Concord, one of whose stated aims was to keep the rest of us awake. Very happily, we have the writer and professor, Kostika Bradatan, to help us hear Thoreau's call. Kostika, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. So I was being a bit tongue-in-cheek, calling him an influencer, but he is hard to pin down, isn't he? You say it in your piece. I mean, obviously he's a writer, but he's much, much more than that as well. Exactly. Um... He himself had some issues when it came to defining who he was. He would be doing uh, manual labor, and he was very good at it. He would be a writer, a philosopher, a scientist, a poet, you name it. In France, that's indeed a funny way of putting it, because I I guess one thing he he would not want to be would be this kind of 21st century self-help gurus, influence, social media person. Yes, no, I'm sure he would hate hate me calling him that. I'm doing no, it. That's a good way to. It's a good way to open up the conversation because, um, again, as you just said, um, there is something fluid, something marvelously open about about his whole thing, his whole being, his whole personality. Uh, there are so many ways of, of entering into his work, so many different angles from, from which we can look at it. Um, and that's one, of, I guess, one of the secrets, one of his secrets, one of the reasons why we, we, still, uh, we are still reading him today with such profit. The concerns feel very contemporary. You say in your piece that in his life, it was a time of great change in America as a whole, and that he was... He was he kind of was a voice against it, wasn't he? And I was trying to think about this. This wasn't a voice against change per se, but it, the idea of kind of headlong change without thinking about where it was going. Is that was that fair to say that? Yes, excellent, excellent point. What happens, first of all, we have there is a contrarian side of him. No yeah. matter what, he would go against, right? That's a one one thing to keep in mind. Yeah. But when it came to those changes taking place at the time, he was particularly well positioned to understand them because he was rooted in in, uh, in the you know great traditions of both East and West, and he had a good grasp of what was going on. He had a, a gift for technological stuff, for newness, for whatever whatever was going on scientifically in, in his world. And yet he understood that 
technology and novelty and you know piling up of wealth and the cultivation of you know uh, limitless capital accumulation and so on may in the long run be be damaging to us because we may be losing our humanity in the process he what, what we have in him is it's, I'm, I'm fascinated by, by his figure he's a great thinker but he had at the same time as the artistic sensibility he was a poet he would a bit of a prophet perhaps um, he would feel change in the year and 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 if if the change was affecting us in in, in a bad way he would be uh, able to warn us and well, forewarn us so what he saw in that gradual acceleration of the 19th century in the in the mindless accumulation of wealth and so on was precisely this danger of, of losing our humanity Costica, I wonder, where was he sort of coming from, I guess, in a kind of more sort of material, literal sense to make these kind of interventions? He came from a kind of business-minded family, didn't he? Right, right. His family had a pencil-making factory, um, like middle-sized, something, nothing big, but reasonably well reasonably big he, he they they could live off it mm. he was involved in that they had they were not spectacularly wealthy so there's always this danger of, of going bankrupt of wrecking the whole thing but uh, so he was comfortably wealthy but not again uh for example in, while in college he had to take some time off to teach to you know make a living because his parents just could not afford to to, to keep him there when he graduated, he had to have a job. Later on, he would be doing land surveying. So it's kind of, it's, it's tricky. Uh, he had just enough to live a decent life, but not too much to be blinded by wealth, to be you know, confiscated, to be on the other side. Mm. So in a way, he did sort of understand both, both sides of it, both the need to work and also the need to just not work for the sake of it. Well, actually, one of the books is about work, isn't it? The one by John Cargan and Jonathan Van Bell. It's and this is strange paradox that that though you say he kind of he was in praise of idleness and in a way he seemed in favor of doing nothing, but in fact he was incredibly industrious and as you say, did lots and lots of things. He was, he was, and he was quite good. He was very a very practical person. He could fix stuff, he could make stuff, he could make things work, and so on. He was a, a good worker, an efficient worker. At the same time, he was someone who, who pondered, considered the big questions about work. Why do we work? Why do we need to work? For how, you know, how, how long? For how much? And so on. So that, that book you, you just mentioned, you know, kind of recreates the context of, of this thinking. So basically, we have somebody who said, after, you know, having done all the computation, the calculations and so on, Somebody who said six weeks of work per year is just fine. <laughs> oh, really? Amazing. Yes. I mean, all in all, oh, all in all six weeks per work of work, you know, decent work is fine. We have all the rest, all the time then to take care of ourselves, to take care of our, you know, spiritual growth, to take care of, to, to look around, to contemplate, to understand ourselves better, to understand the world around better and so on. It's a beautiful, it's a beautiful concept. Because, of course, the problem was he, he realized how little we need to work when he realized what his needs were in the world were. 
I need some some shelter, I need some food, I need such and such and such. And then when you put everything together, you would uh, come up with this figure, six weeks of work, more or less. Mm. Uh, a minimalist, of course, and that, of course, that was not the capitalist no. way. That's not our way. <laughs> Very and much that, not. It sounds amazing. Six weeks. Of I might be year. being really uh, sort of literal here, but I'm I'm very interested in how he imagined that that might actually sort of, as it were, scale up from the individual. So there he was with his minimal needs, but he did need food. You can't produce food only for six weeks of the year. Did he imagine that, that there would be a sort of network of people so an individual could just do their bit and then step back and another person could step forward to kind of tend the crops, be a doctor, run the transportation system, all the things that that make the fabric of a society work? Or did he think that that fabric itself needed a radical change? The question, what happens, so we have... what. what... He goes to to leave by himself, right near mm. the pond, mm. and that's where the philosophical experiment takes place. And that in the book he he writes after the first chapter, a you know sizable chapter, is called economy. So that's where he puts the, he works out all I just said, and she, so of course we don't we're not talking about six weeks, you know, one after the other, but they are spread across the whole year. You plant, you take care of the fields, you. So it's all in all, it's six weeks. But of course, if he was a drastic, that was a drastic simplification. That was a drastic, he was always for simplification. Simplify your needs, simplify your living, simplify your life, simplify your style, including the writing style. And in that respect, that's why he's so so well positioned today to help us understand what's going on because we, are, there's so much going on. There are so many things that are being thrown at us, that we, we really need this kind of simplification. Mm. But, but now to go back, it's a, so of course he would need society. He was well aware. He would often go, go back to the city to do some work, to exchange stuff. That's how he got in prison at some point uh, because he, he, was, he, would not pay, he would not pay his taxes. He thought that you, you can on your own, you know, leave off your land, piece of, you know, bit of land uh, without fundamentally involving the others. It's, it's, it was all about self-sufficiency, self-sustaining, and so on. That, that, was the, that was the boldness, the novelty and the boldness of the project. He went away from the city precisely to, to set up the experiment. Mm, mm. Um, another one of the books by Caleb Smith is about another incredibly modern um, concern. It's about attention and distraction, isn't it? In this sense, the, the spiritual side of it. Is that right? Right, right. And he, of course, in, in that book, it's not only Thoreau, you have a large number, 28, I think, 28 texts from different authors, religious reformers and social thinkers and so on. And uh, he, Smith called that, the whole thing calls the attention revival in the 19th century, of which, of course, Thoreau was, was, was part. Back then, they didn't have the intensity of, of distraction that we have, the, the, so many distractions and in so many different ways, and yet they felt the pressure. So they realized that you, there is a lot of distraction. We lose focus. We lose, we can no longer focus on what we really need to. 
on our fundamental needs, spiritual needs, but also fundamental basic needs. So there is a, a, a really a danger here. And that's, again, that's a good, a good way to resonate, a good way to reconnect with those times and those thinkers, because whatever they said is very much about our own world. How did the people around him react at the time? Other thinkers, other writers. Obviously, he he fell foul, as you as you explain, of the authorities. But did his work fall on receptive ears, or was he seen very much as an outsider? It's very interesting. You would say we we would say today that he must have come across as as a crazy individual, as something really really different, as some uh, outcast and parian so on. Actually, it wasn't that much. Of course, he would be peculiar. He would have this public persona of somebody who is different from others and has his own different ways and so on, but not as much as we would think. But because our way of constructing social failures, social losers, back then was not yet you know, in place, it, it starts right there. If you don't have a steady job, if you don't have employment, if you don't make that amount of money, you are a loser. Hey, well, that happens later. And that's precisely what he was concerned about. This huge social pressure to, uh, which is being placed upon every single one of us to, to make money, to spend money, to make even more money, to spend more and so on. So in at that particular context, in, in his social setting, he was seen as different, but some with some respect, with curiosity, with consideration, because of he also he was a very nice person. He was helpful. He was friendly. He was, um, but of course we have we do have a, a number of things here. For example, Emerson, who was his mentor and friend and so on, uh, and who lived longer, even if he was older than he, he was born earlier. When Thor died, Emerson in his eulogy said something like. What a shame, this guy had so much potential and he could have done so much more, <laughs> but he didn't. He died too young, He's, you know, he wasted his life a bit. He, he pursued strange projects, which of course, from our point of view, is not true because what we like about her is precisely this incompleteness. He's, way of, of saying things tentatively, of not following through, of, of just sketching stuff. Well, it's also interesting, isn't it, to see that he was putting a distance between the kind of thinking that sees the individual as, as, a, as a unit of production, that, you know, not to actually produce something material, tangible, obvious, measurable, was not to him to say, I haven't achieved anything with my life. His life was the project. No, obviously, obviously. That was really small part. They played a small part in his life. He's more than he, even than his books, I guess, his biggest achievement would have been his own self, uh, building himself into, creating himself into someone who is accomplished spiritually, who understands the world, who is, you know, taking good, good care of nature, who's, who's positioned in the world in a proper way, in a smart, wise way. Wisdom. That's, that's yes, I guess, the, the word we, we need to use here, wisdom. He was always seeking to insert himself within a broader tradition of, of wisdom. 
And that's one of the things I was going to say, that this idea, as you say, of living, he wanted to live deliberately, he wanted to be, as as I said in the introduction, he wanted to, to be awake, he wanted to be mindful or wakeful, as you, you say in your piece, he wanted to be kind of alive to what was going on around him. And especially in terms of, I mean, I'm thinking particularly in terms of the environment and, and, and living with nature, alongside nature, as part of it, that that couldn't be more relevant at the moment, could it? Oh yes, oh yes. That that part because it's it's fascinating how each generation, subsequent generation, has discovered a different face of facet of of, of of her. And lately, lately, that's the most right now. That's the hottest uh, thing when yeah. it comes to because he basically he he has something important to teach us about how we should relate to nature how we should listen to what's going on, how we should take care of nature. And even in, in, in terms of ecology, he later in his, in his life, he became obsessed with measurements. He would measure the temperature every single day of the lake and so on. And he would count stuff. He would kind of collect big data in, in, in a mm. very pre-modern way. Uh, and and he would put you know uh, compute everything together to get a sense of what was going on he because again he had a mathematical bent his mind had a mathematical bent he he was a humanist he was a, a discursive thinker and so on but yet he was also very open towards uh, the technology math and, and the, the physical sciences and so on so and he would even at some point he collaborated with biologists with he was very much involved in, in the scientific uh, uh, world of his time and, mm. But when it comes to climate change, to our own concerns about climate change and, and the degradation of nature and so on, he would be really someone to learn from. Mm. Mm. What are you saying about him being a, a, you know, a scientist and a humanist and sort of practical and also kind of rather not quite visionary, but practical and also spiritual, all of those things. I'm just w wanting to mention the third book because the, the third one that you talk about by Lawrence Buell is, is about the man, isn't it? Or the, the sort of many selves he had, which nonetheless, you say in your piece, even though he had these many selves, he was always him. Right. Somehow it worked. All those things, he, wa he was many people at once. He was the scientist, the humanist, and so on, the solitary, the, 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 the social person, and so on. And yet somehow, somehow all that worked together nicely in the end. We just mentioned, you asked about the scientist and humanist. He would be a very good response to our own issue with two cultures. Mm. You can do science and human humanities at the same in a, in a, in a same time in, in a in a harmonious manner. Uh, but, but beyond that, you know, specific issue, he was a a very rich, very multi-layered texture personality. Something we don't encounter much today because it's a we are the product of a, a different world. We are you know, specialized. We've been forced to to choose a much narrower, a much narrower life, to pursue mm. a, a much narrower career, professional path, and so on. It comes from as if from a different, you know, age. He was from a different age, but and that's but he comes in a very nice way as as a promise, as a response to our own issues about special over specialization and so on. Um, he, he shows to us that it's it's still possible in a way, even if in a utopian kind of way, to be involved in different branches of knowledge.
much to try to make sense of them all, to, to bring them together somehow. It, not necessarily to solve the big problems, even if it can happen, but more importantly, to, to, to live at peace with yourself, to reach some kind of harmonious living and way of being in the world. He's a really good example in that respect. And the final, the, the book you just mentioned, um, the third one is a, is a very nice portrait of this complex person that, that Thoreau was. Mm-hmm. As we've said, there are many, many um, things about him that are still terribly relevant. Is there, is there an upsurge of interest in him again, do you think? Or is it constant? As you say, everyone's, each new generation finds their own Thoreau. Right. It's lately. I think it's a it's a, a, a real, a significant, visible surge in, in, of interest in, in his work, um, for a number of reasons, I guess. Uh, some of which are visible in in, in in the text we are discussing. I mean, um, our own concerns with work, with you know, overwork, with lack of work, and so on, um, is 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 one reason why we go back to him. Our own concerns with attention, distraction, lack of focus, and so on, is yet another reason. Our concern with populism, with um, mass, you know, crowd, the mass, massification of our lives, is, is one more reason to go back to him and listen to what he had to say about solitude and what happens when you are alone, and so on. There are so many things going on that, that make us look him out. But lately, so also in the science, in ecology, in, in, in environmental science studies, he's, he's, he has a comeback because he has, he offers some responses. Uh, but again, it, it has never, he, he, soon after he died, actually, he became an iconic. Um, right, right after he was, there was something extremely powerful and attractive and unmistakably unique about him. People realized, even those who, I mean, some of his friends ended up, who survived him, ended up writing biographies of him because they knew right away that he was, this was a, a special man. This was a man who had, a person who had something to say. And and, and from then on, of course, uh, things would only, you know, grow in, 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 in size and complexity and intensity and so on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, Costco, thank you so much for talking to us today about Thoreau, who still has so much to, as you say, impart to us. Possibly not least that that the idea that we can all work six weeks a year. I'm yes, sorry, I'm, that, I'm, I'm so I'm, taken I'm, with that. I'm, I'm taken with that <laughs> too. It makes me seem very Where work would it shy. put our podcast, Lucy? Well, that, really would, that would be a problem. That would be a problem. That's for <laughs> us to resolve later. <laughs> but that was so. That was so interesting. I'm a person who doesn't really know very much about about Thoreau and certainly not in any great detail and this was a, a, a wonderful introduction thank you very much thank you so much have time for this week our thanks go to Sinead Gleeson and Kostika Bradertown and thank you for listening to this episode of the TLS podcast produced by Charlotte Pardy we'll be back next week but for now from Lucy Dallas and from me Alex Clark goodbye
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.